Myoshin spoke beautifully the other night about the power and the scope of mindfulness. It's interesting to me that in English, the word mindfulness doesn't have a lot of pizzazz. You know, somehow the English word, it doesn't have the same feel or depth of meaning as words like wisdom or compassion. Mindfulness feels so prosaic. And yet this very humble word, mindfulness, points to the factor of mind that the Buddha said leads directly to awakening. So the factor of mind that it's pointing to is extremely powerful and extremely profound. Now the opening paragraph of the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, <coughs> the Buddha said bhikkhus. And here bhikkhus refers to all beings who are practicing. So this is us. Bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of suffering and discontent, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So there's something here that is worth looking at and worth exploring. So tonight I'd like to talk about some quite specific applications of mindfulness and other supportive factors uh, on our path. As most of you know, the very first insight of insight meditation is the understanding of how often our minds wander. Now, is there anybody who has not had that insight yet? (laughs) I think it's immediately obvious as soon as we start to sit. You know, thoughts and images and fantasies and memories and plans and judgments and desires and aversions, they all come and carry us away. You know, we hop on these trains of association and have no idea of the destination. It's like being in a movie theater. Sitting and watching one's mind is like being in a movie theater where they change the film every two minutes. (laughs) Because it's just this continual play, you know, of often random images and thoughts and feelings. So the first step well, we could say the first steps on this meditative journey is learning or practicing how to calm the mind and collect the attention. We give the mind a primary object like the breath or like the step in the walking and we train it to stay steady. Now this training has two important aspects that become the basis for establishing a stable and enduring concentration of mind and a stability of awareness. And these two factors, which we've already mentioned in brief, are aiming the mind, connecting, and then the sustaining of attention. 
So in Pali, these two words, these two factors are called vitaka and vichara. And they're two of the five factors of the first jhana, the first level of absorption, or samadhi. So these two factors of mind, these two qualities of mind are crucial. They're crucial building blocks in developing and sustaining a stability. <clears throat> so what does aiming the mind mean? You know, we hear this word, but then how do we translate it into what we're doing in the practice? So what does right aim mean? When you sit, you know, working with the breath, or walk and attending to the movement, And if we simply have the hope or even just an initial intention, oh, let my mind be with the breath. Let my mind be with the step. You know, we kind of hope that it goes there. Maybe even an initial, you know, initial intention. But how long does that last? Probably about two and a half seconds. You know, it's not doesn't have yet a lot of power. Why is this? And here I'm going to call upon my vast knowledge of science, (laughs) which is really very little. But I think it has to do in some meditative way with the second law of thermodynamics, which (laughs) basically, as I understand it, has to do with the understanding of entropy, which is that systems tend to disorder. You know, systems left by themselves will tend to disorder. And one explanation, in in reading a few books of science, you know, for the layman, there are different explanations for why entropy happens. But one of the explanations which kind of resonated with me, was that things tend to disorder because there are many more possibilities for disorder than order. And so generally systems tend in that direction. As an example, if you throw an unbound book up into the air, it's very unlikely that those pages are going to fall down in the proper sequence, you know, where you could just read the book in order. Why? Because there are many more possibilities for the pages to fall down out of order. Okay, so what does this have to do with meditation? There are so many places other than the breath or the step that the mind can land. Namely... You know, all our different thoughts and memories and plans, I mean, just so many places the mind can go. So it's very likely left to itself that the mind is going to go there. It takes a certain energy, it takes a certain intention to counteract this force of mental entropy. And the force or the intention has to do with this right aim, where with each half breath, or with each part of the step, 
there is this intention or this gathering of the mind to send it to the object, to aim it at the object. So it actually lands, the attention actually lands where we want it to go, rather than just hoping. Just like hand-eye coordination takes some practice, so also mind-object coordination takes some practice. So it's like aiming the dart of attention at the dartboard of our breath. Can we aim so we hit the bullseye? Aiming the dart of attention at the dartboard of the step. It's that move that brings a certain intentionality, a certain consciousness. We're actually shaping the mind. We need to do this again and again. It's not enough to sit down and in the sitting, the first breath, okay, I'll aim the mind for the first breath and then hope it keeps landing on the breath for the rest of the hour. When it's very well trained, the mind may well do that. But in the process of training, we need to aim and re-aim with each half breath. That becomes the practice. The word in Pali for meditation, meditation is a translation of a Pali word, the, the word is bhavana. And the word bhavana means causing something to be developed. It's an interesting it's an interesting notion that meditation is causing or it's that practice causing certain factors to be developed. How do we develop them? Through practice. Aiming and re-aiming the mind with each in-breath. We aim it to the beginning of it with each out-breath re-aiming with the next in-breath. As we do this, half-breath by half-breath, we get a very intimate and direct and personal experience of the fact that the mind can be trained. We can do this, but we have to do it in very short intervals. If we do it with a hope or an expectation, oh, my mind is going to be on the breath for the whole hour, It is way too much. We don't have that capacity. But we do have the capacity for aiming with half a breath or part of a step. That's all we need to do. And when we do it, we see the very immediate result. It's like we aim the mind to the breath. We actually do connect. Oh, I can do this. And it brings about a certain confidence, a certain faith, you know, and a certain energy. Yes, this is possible for this short interval. And then we do it again, and we do it again, and we do it again. And in this way, the power of mind grows, the strength of mind grows. It grows in very small steps. 
So the second aspect of concentration, the first is the right aiming, the second factor, vichara, is the sustaining of the attention. Once we've aimed, once we've connected, then we want to hold the attention for the duration of that half-breath, or the duration of the step. Now in this factor, here we can explore a little bit of the nuances of meditation. Kind of begin to understand that meditation is an art. And there's a lot of nuance and delicacy that we can bring to our practice. So, for example, in the sustaining of the attention on a half-breath or on a step, how are we doing that? We might do it simply, once we've, once we've aimed correctly and we've connected, we might sustain the attention in a very relaxed way, simply knowing the breath, knowing the step, in the same way that we know sound. When a sound appears, do you have to make any big special effort to know it? Or to stay with it? Probably not, because the sound is impinging so clearly that the mind naturally is aware of it and knows it for as long as it's there. So that reveals the nature of mind as being awareness. So this factor of sustaining, once we've connected, maybe it's enough we just connect and then simply know the natural flow of the breath, the natural flow of the step. But sometimes that might not be enough. And this is the art of the practice, and this is where you have to play and, and explore. Maybe at certain times it needs more intentionality to sustain the attention. You know, we aim, we connect, but then we find the mind just goes off the object. So then it's a question of coming in a bit closer. As we practice in this way, and again, it's the practice of bhavana, of causing something to be developed. So we're developing strengthening the factors of right aim, sustaining the attention. As we do this, slowly the mind actually begins to settle down a bit. You know, the thoughts are still there, but they're a bit softer. They're not so compelling. They're not so demanding in our minds. We begin to experience some sense of inner relief some sense of inner ease. And as this happens, from this place of somewhat greater calm and collectedness, we begin to experience the body in a new way. We begin to experience the body in a very intimate and a vivid way. Now we might start feeling places of tension or tightness, or pressure, or heat, or vibration, or tingling. There's a wide range of bodily sensations that begin to manifest. And what's interesting is that these sensations are always present. 
but in our normal lives we're simply not aware of them because we're so distracted either by what's in our mind or by external diversions. But as the mind settles, as we become calm, a little more collected, the sensations of the body begin to reveal themselves. We begin to pay attention to the whole range of sensations that can come. And often, especially at first, often um, the sensations are not all that pleasant. You know, we begin to tune in to places of tension or discomfort. In doing that, there's a growing discernment of different kinds of pain, different kinds of discomfort. I think it's helpful just to acknowledge some of these different categories. Some pain that we feel or experience is the pain of a danger signal. You know, if you put your hand in fire, you don't want to just say, burning, burning, burning. That sensation is sending a message. It's saying, danger, take your hand out. So that's a very real part of experience, and we should pay attention to that. Another kind of pain or discomfort comes just from sitting in an unaccustomed posture. You know, and so sometimes the body feels stiff or uncomfortable because you're sitting in a way that you're not usually accustomed to. And a third kind of pain is something I call Dharma pain. And that is not the pain of a danger signal or just kind of the unaccustomed posture. But this has to do with becoming aware of deep places of holding or tension or tightness that have accumulated in our bodies that often are submerged you know, beneath the level of our awareness. We don't even know we're carrying this until we get quiet enough to begin to pay attention. And so we might feel all kinds of sensations of discomfort. And it's really an uncovering, it's an opening. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's old traumas, you know, even back from childhood uh, to the body. And they've been stored in some way and they're beginning to come to the surface. So on this level, we see awareness or mindfulness as being the vehicle of a great healing process. Because as we open to it, as we open to all these kinds of Dharma pains, slowly there is an unwinding of the tensions, an unwinding of the knots. Just in a very practical way, how can you tell the difference between pain as a danger signal and Dharma pain? Something that has worked well for me over the years, and you can each explore in your own way, but what I've noticed is that if I'm sitting and there's very strong pain in the body, but at the end of the sitting I get up, you know, and within a minute or so the pain goes away, then it's always been okay. Then I I really take that to have been a Dharma pain 
that's coming from the opening, from the attentiveness. Because when I get up, it's gone. And it can be very intense. But still, if it's gone, then it has never been a problem. If, on the other hand, you're sitting and there's a lot of discomfort and you get up and walk and there's, the pain is still there and you sit and the pain grows and you walk and the pain is still there, maybe in your knee or your back or whatever, then it may be, if over the course of a day or several days you feel that it's simply growing and it doesn't go away when you get up from sitting, then it may well be that you're straining too much in the posture. You know, it might be good to change postures or sit in a chair. Um, so pay attention to that. And again, you'll need to discover this uh, for yourself. As we open to the different sensations in the body, not only do we discover different kinds of discomfort, different kinds of pain, we also learn about the many strategies we've developed in our lives, over the course of our lives, in dealing with pain, in dealing with discomfort. You know, it might be fear. Often, you know, there's an uncomfortable sensation and the mind can react with fear. And even if it's just a little bit in the moment, well, what will it be like in an hour? You know, and we imagine it getting worse and so we withdraw. It might be self-pity, it might be doubt, it might be aversion, it might be irritation, it might be denial. If you're sitting with discomfort and there is some sense of struggle to be with it, that sense of struggle is a very important feedback. It's a useful piece of information because what the struggle means is that there is something going on that you're not accepting. Because if you are accepting it, you wouldn't be struggling. So the struggle can point you in the direction, okay, well, what's going on in my mind in relationship to this pain, to this discomfort? And so it can highlight that, can become more aware of the different strategies that have been used. I'll just tell a little story. The, the story is, is about a trivial incident, but it, it points to a pattern you know, that I found very useful and illuminating. This goes back to my days in India. Um, this was, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, so we were at, in Bodh Gaya at the Burmese Vihara, which is uh, a place where a lot of the Westerners were staying and practicing in Bodh Gaya. I was living in this small little hut. It was like seven feet by seven feet. And it didn't have a door. It just had a canvas flap on it. And I was sitting a lot in my hut on my bed. And one time I'm sitting and this cat wanders in and plops down on my lap. I'm kind of more of a dog person than a cat person. <laughs> so I kind of take the cat and toss it out the door. Like 15 seconds later, <laughs> in it comes back on my lap. So I do the same thing. I kind of toss it out. It comes back. 
So I'm getting more and more annoyed and irritated here. I'm trying to get enlightened and this cat is bothering me. <laughs> I don't know, this went on for 20 minutes, 25 minutes. Finally, I had to surrender because there was no door on my hut. <laughs> so the last, the cat comes in, sits down on my lap. Okay, I surrender. Let it just be there. About 10 seconds later, the cat gets up, walks out the door, and doesn't come back. <laughs> it was just such an example to me of how resistance feeds what we're resisting. And it's so true in meditation. It was just something to watch, you know, especially with pain or discomfort or our resistance to it just locks it in. But there are strong patterns of resistance. You know, and so this is something we just need to see and explore and practice. Okay, can I allow this? Can I be with it? Can I feel it? You know, softening to it, opening to it. Meditation practice is learning a new way about being with difficult experience. Because usually our mode is to keep difficult experience out. And we, we build our whole lives around that. And meditation is about learning to let difficult experience in. Just letting it in, not resisting, being with it, opening to it. It's a whole different way of being with our experience. Very often people feel discouraged or depressed or impatient in dealing with the unpleasant sensations in the body. You know, when, when you, you probably are beyond this particular thing, but, you know, it's often quite upsetting when pe- to people when they realize that, oh, this meditation practice is not all bliss. You know, because kind of the, oh yeah, I'll sit, I'll come to a meditation retreat and I'll just kind of bliss out for ten days or six weeks or three months. (laughs) Forget it. (laughs) That's not what this is about. You know, how often do we judge our sittings as being good or bad sittings based on how pleasant or unpleasant it's been. You know, you have a really pleasant sitting, the body's light, tingling, nice soft vibrations. Oh, that was a great sitting. Or then maybe you're just a lot of pain and tension and tightness and discomfort. You got, oh, that was a terrible sitting. The pleasantness or unpleasantness of what we feel has nothing to do with good sitting or bad sitting even though that's the measure we continually bring to it. The measure is really how mindful we were, how open we were, how unattached we were. There was a great Burmese master, his name was Shweyu Min, and he was considered to be an arhant, fully enlightened being. He died not too long ago, I don't know exactly, maybe ten years or so. And he was one of the monks in Burma for whom Saito Pandita had a tremendous amount of respect. 
He was he was very old when he died. I think he was in his nineties. And so I just want to read just a few little pieces of his teaching. He said, you have to accept and watch both pleasant and unpleasant experiences. You only want pleasant experience. You don't want even the tiniest unpleasant experience. Is this fair? Is this the way of the Dhamma? (laughs) I love that line. You know. Is this fair? Is this the way of the Dhamma? No, the Dhamma is to open. It's just to open. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. Can we learn to be with the truth of our experience, however it is, in a skillful way, in an open way? Opening to difficult, unpleasant sensations in the body can lead to a very interesting meditative experience and one that is very revealing about the nature of the mind and body. And that is the experience we can have of feeling mental pleasure with physical discomfort. So the object may be pain, But if the mind is concentrated and still and calm and open and mindful, the mind state can be very pleasant, even as the object in the body is unpleasant. One point I was in Bodh Gaya and just sitting in the kind of the little village, the bazaar, with friends having a cup of chai. And Munindraji, my first teacher, came by. And just on that day, I was having a really bad headache. And so I was sitting there, and he came by, and he asked, you know, how I was doing. And um, so I said, you know, I have this really bad headache. And all he said to me was, oh, I hope you are enjoying it. (laughs) And I was so not what I expected. (laughs) If you're feeling discomfort in the body, at those times when you're not reactive, when you really feel that you're just with it and you're concentrated and you're open, you know, and you're not you're not contracted or pulling back or fearful, you're just there with it, you're being mindful of it, it will be interesting for you to pay attention to the feeling in your mind. Because usually we're just paying attention to the bodily feeling because it's so predominant. And we often miss the fact or miss the experience that our mind can actually be having quite a pleasant feeling even in the experience of pain. I had a very striking example of this. And this this goes back years. I was visiting some friends in California and we were going someplace in the car, and it was, you know, I was sitting in the middle of the front, of the front seat, and I just had my arm, you know, on the back of the seat, and the person who got in after me closed the door on my finger, and this was a heavy door. <laughs> oh, it really hurt. <laughs> it really hurt. 
and I don't know why I didn't do anything that night. I didn't go to the emergency room or anything, but it, it was just this intense, painful throbbing all night long. I, just, I couldn't sleep at all. It was, it was such an intense sensation. But it was so interesting to me because I was just lying there, you know, and just being with it hour after hour after hour. At a certain point, I went through, of course, a period of aversion and not liking it and all of that, but at a certain point, my mind just surrendered and was just with it. And it was so interesting. My mind got so concentrated. My mind was not wandering. You know, it was right with it for hours. You know, just hours and hours. It's like my mind became luminous. My mind became so concentrated and so light and so... It was a kind of bliss, even as the finger was really hurting. So it was just a very good lesson. You know, an understanding the potential, the possibility for training our minds to actually be in a pleasant feeling, a pleasant state, a wholesome state, even when the mind, the body is hurting. Okay, mindfulness of the body, you know, by opening to these sensations opens a doorway to a very fundamental and important level shift in practice. By paying attention to the body and the different sensations that appear and arise, we begin to distinguish very clearly for ourselves the difference between our concepts about experience and the direct experience itself. Now even though this may seem like an obvious distinction, in our lives we often confuse these levels. And the confusion of these levels of concept and direct experience is the cause of a lot of suffering for ourselves. It's the difference, for example, between being lost in the thought, oh, my back hurts, my knees are killing me, whatever, just extrapolate from that. And the difference between that, my back hurts, my knees hurt, the difference between that and awareness of the actual sensations we're feeling of throbbing, of pressure, of tightness, of stabbing. We do not feel back. We do not feel knees. There is no sensation called back. Back is a concept. Back is a word designating a kind of image we have of the body. What we're what we're feeling in the moment, the direct experience of what we're feeling are particular sensations. Do you see the difference here? Back, arm, leg, head, shoulder, body, all of that is a concept. Meditation brings us to the level of the elements. Now why is this important? It's important because Concepts, 
concepts don't change. Back today, back tomorrow, back yesterday, I'll have a back next week. And so to the degree that we're lost in concept, we are living in the illusion of the static nature of things. The the more permanent nature of things. Yet we're, we're on the level of the elements, when we're on the level of direct, intimate experience of the sensations that we're feeling, we see that they're not lasting, they're not the same even for two moments. The sensations, the elements, are in constant change, constant flux. As we drop to that level in our practice, then we have a much more profound insight into the nature of impermanence, into the nature of insubstantiality. Begin to go from the level of concept of body to the experience of the body as being a very fluid, changing energy field. It's not something static or solid at all. It's like looking through a microscope. You know, it's something that seems so solid, and yet through a high-power microscope, a whole new world can be revealed. Lots going on. But in our normal perception, we don't see that. So this is the power of meditation and what attention to the different sensations that arise this is the doorway we go through you know, of dropping from concept to the level of changing uh, elements. Okay, so from this grounding in the breath and in the body, working with right aiming and sustaining and then opening to the whole range of sensation, as we get grounded in this, then we have a certain stability of attention that enables us to explore more precisely the inner nature of the mind, the workings of the mind. We see more and more clearly the conditioned habit patterns and tendencies or patterns of thought and emotion. You know, we begin to see more clearly all our likes and our dislikes, our judgments, our preferences, our desires. We begin to become very aware of the ongoing inner dialogue, the inner commentary about almost everything. You know, the mind doesn't stop very easily. We're in the habit of this inner dialogue. You're standing online for lunch. Have you ever had just these flitting little thoughts about the other people online? You know, maybe you don't even know them. You know, you haven't met them before. But little thoughts, little judgments, little comments. It's so interesting that the mind and even more interesting, kind of out in the world where you go someplace impersonal where you you don't really have much of a connection with them at all. You just happen to be in the same place. And it doesn't stop the mind from having a comment. (laughs) And then all the endless self-judgments. 
you know, it's bad enough, all this going on about other people, even people we don't know, but then we begin to become aware of all the self-judgments that are going on. It's so amazing. The mind will start get lost in these self-judgments about the most ridiculous things. I was sitting in uh, May and June at the Forest Refuge with Saira Upandita, and my yogi job was veggie chopping in the kitchen. So one day, you know, I was given a bunch of carrots, and they wanted these carrots cut. I don't know that this is general knowledge or this is just IMS terminology, but you know, they wanted to cut like holding the carrot sort of like a pencil, and you know, turning it and just slicing the bottom so you get these nice angles on the carrots. Okay, so it wasn't that hard to do. So I was doing that. And then the next day I go in, and, you know, we were working, we had, there were two of us. And the next day I go in, and the cooks gave my veggie chopping partner, the cooks gave her the carrots, and they told me to just pick off the parsley leaves. <laughs> So the first thought in my mind, oh, they didn't like the way I sliced the carrots, now I'm demoted (laughs) to parsley leaves. (laughs) I mean, my rational mind knew, (laughs) I'm just making all this up. But there it was, you know, unbidden, very spontaneous. Years ago, in an interview, one yogi came in and had one of the all-time great lines about meditation. They came in and they said, you know, what I've discovered in my practice is that the mind has no pride. (laughs) (laughs) And it's true. I mean, the mind will just do all of this stuff. So given that, it's important that we become aware of it. You know, so that we're not just lost in it and believing it all. The stuff is going to happen. These thoughts are going to happen, whether it's about other people, whether these self-judgments, they are going to arise. But our task is, can we be mindful of them? Can we be aware? You know, particularly watch, you know, this I know you're all familiar with, but I just want to reiterate right at the beginning of the retreat, Beware of the Vipassana romance, the Vipassana vendetta. You know, people you're attracted to, people you can't stand, and the mind just proliferating in thoughts about this. Not difficult for people to spend six weeks or three months obsessing. Be mindful. It's just a thought. It doesn't have to do with anything. So what becomes obvious as we pay attention, you know, as we learn through the stability of awareness that we've developed on the breath and on the body, through that stability of attention, it becomes very clear that we're not inviting all these thoughts. You know, they're just coming, they're just arising. But through mindfulness, through awareness, we get sensitized 
to a very critical distinction, and that is the difference in our experience between being aware of a thought and being lost in a thought. The thought is still there in both situations. The thought is there, it's come, it has come uninvited, unbidden, the thought arises, but there is a huge difference in our experience when we're aware that we're thinking and when we're unaware that we're thinking, when we're lost in it. So that's our practice. We want to practice being mindful. This again is from this Burmese master, Shweyu Min. He said, don't feel, dis- don't feel disturbed by the thinking mind. You are not practicing to prevent thinking. What you are practicing is to recognize and acknowledge thinking when it arises. Did you get that? This is really important because so often people make their meditation practice this tremendous struggle with thought, you know, with the idea, oh, I'm not supposed to be thinking, and if only I could make the thoughts stop. And there's this inner conflict, and that's not what the practice is about. Don't feel disturbed by the thinking mind. You are not practicing to prevent thinking, What you are practicing is to recognize and acknowledge thinking when it arises. So be very clear about what it is that you're practicing. And as we do that, thought itself becomes an amazingly interesting object of meditation. Because, and again, once there's some stability of awareness established with the breath and the body, once we have some stability of mindfulness and concentration, then we can really look at the very nature of thought itself. When we're not lost in the content of it or the story, but a thought arises and there's enough presence of mind to look or to investigate the question, what is a thought? What is this phenomenon? It's pretty interesting. Because we see that when thoughts are unnoticed, they have this tremendous power in our lives. You know, it's coercive power. I, I kind of see thoughts, unnoticed thoughts, as being these little dictators of the mind. Because they're right, go here, go there, do this, do that. You know, without much concern, whether it's a good thing to do or a bad thing to do, the thought comes, we're off and running. And yet when we are aware of a thought, when we're really looking at the nature of a thought, we see that it's little more than nothing. It's just this kind of momentary little energy blip in the mind. It has no power at all. So this gets very interesting to see, that the only power thoughts have is the power that we give them. And yet, out of habit, we give them a tremendous amount of power over and over and over again. This is a teaching from one of 
the great Tibetan masters of the last century. Wonderful, wonderful being. His name was Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche. He said, when a rainbow appears, we see many beautiful colors. Yet a rainbow is not something we can clothe ourselves with or wear as an ornament. It simply appears through the conjunction of various conditions. Thoughts arise in the mind in just the same way. They have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thoughts should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. But as long as we take our deluded thoughts as real, they will continue to torment us mercilessly, as they have been doing through countless past lives. So instead of getting into a struggle with the thinking mind, or having the idea that somehow we have to prevent thoughts from coming, can really use the thoughts as an opportunity for this investigation. And you will have countless opportunities to do this. To really see into their empty nature. I mean, that is tremendously liberating, tremendously freeing to the extent that we can see this for ourselves. So every time you awaken from being lost in a thought, whether it's right at the beginning or in the middle or at the end or even after it's over, but at whatever moment you awaken from being lost and are mindful that you're thinking or have been thinking, Take a moment and recognize the quality of that wakefulness. You can take delight in that moment of wakefulness rather than getting lost in another self-judgment about having been lost. Do you see this? This relationship to thought is so important because there are so many of them. And so you can practice making them a vehicle for your liberation, for your freedom, rather than being the cause of just more self-judgment and more being lost. This is a powerful part of our practice. As we settle into this growing awareness of ourselves, we begin to realize, as has been mentioned before, that we are not practicing just for ourselves alone. You know, that all of our practice can be done with the aspiration or the value that our practice be for the welfare and the benefit of all beings. 
you might have the question, well, how does being with my breath or being with a step help anybody else? You know, there may not be an obvious connection here. But there is. There's a very profound connection. Because the more deeply we understand ourselves, the more deeply we understand each other. You know, our stories are all different. But the fundamental nature of the body and the mind is the same in all of us. Pain is the same. Pleasure is the same. Anger, sorrow, happiness, love, joy, depression. These qualities are the same in all of us. And the more deeply we understand our own experience, the more connected we are to the experience of each other. There's a great shift that takes place in practice when we go from understanding that our meditation, our spiritual journey will inevitably help others it has to help others. You know, as we become more loving and more accepting and less judgmental and less fearful and less angry, obviously everyone around us is going to benefit. But a shift takes place when we go from the understanding that our practice will inevitably help others to the understanding of making the motivation to help others the very motivation to practice. So it's like we put it right at the beginning rather than simply as a consequence. And so you can do this if you're so inspired, you know, at the beginning of a day or the beginning of a sitting. May my practice, may my meditation be for the benefit, for the welfare of all beings. We just set that aspiration, it, it broadens our path, it establishes the connection. In Buddhism, this is called bodhicitta. You know, that heart-mind of awakening, where we practice in order to benefit you know, all other beings. I'd just like to close with a short teaching from another of the great uh, Tibetan masters, uh, Tsongkhapa. He was the founder, really, of the... Uh, the tradition of the Dalai Lama, the lineage of the Dalai Lama, you know, back in the 14th or 13th century. He said, the human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest gem. Cherish your body. It is yours this one time only. The human form is one with great difficulty. It is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as the tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Therefore set your aspirations and make use of every day and night to achieve them. So let's sit for a few minutes. Thank <laughs> you.
With each half breath, aim the mind. May the merit of our practice be dedicated to the welfare and the happiness and the liberation of all beings. Tonight at the next sitting, uh, Annie is going to uh, begin teaching and leading the metta chant. So, apart from your burning desire for full enlightenment, it might be nice to come and do the chant. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.